0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world having said these things he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent so he went and washed and came back seeing well good morning city on a hill how are you doing Good, good. It's great to see you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Brenton. I've been on the team here for about seven years now. Love being a part of this church. I am husband to Lauren. I'm dad to three kids. I'm also son to Jenny, who has joined us from Perth this week. So glad you're here, mum. Um, And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that we have been going through this series called The Seven Signs of Jesus. We're on to sign number six today. It's a lot of S's. And um, we're going to be looking at another miracle that begs us to ask this question. Who is Jesus? And maybe even more importantly, who is Jesus to me? Every one of these miracles begs this question. And if you just read these stories on a surface level, you could come up with some fairly surface level things. You know, Jesus turned water into wine, he's the life of the party. Uh, Jesus heals people, you know, he's the, just the ultimate doctor. He feeds 5,000 folks with fish and bread. You know, he's the ultimate food truck. He can walk on water. He's the human jet ski. You know, we could come up with all these different things for Jesus. But as we've learned throughout the series, Jesus is so much more than just a miracle worker. Jesus claims to be the Son of God, the great I Am. He's come as the saviour of the world, to bring life for all who believe. And these truths from Scripture force us to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Well, today we're presented with another miracle, where Jesus heals a blind man. And so before we start into this story, let's pray. God, I pray that you would... Open our eyes to see today this person who is Jesus. Use your word to speak to us. May my words fall to the ground and may your words be lifted up. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to walk through this passage, kind of verse by verse. So if you've got a Bible open, we are in John chapter 9. We will put some words up on the screen if you don't have one, but your phone's also a good substitute. Let's have a look at verse 1. It says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now for some context, Jesus has just left the temple where he was run out by a bunch of religious leaders holding stones, ready to throw at him, to kill him. But it says that Jesus hides and he's able to escape. But instead of running from the temple in fear for his life, he gets out the door and all of a sudden he sees a man born blind. Now, we, we could have given Jesus a lot of slack to just keep running, but he stops and he looks. It says he stops and saw a man born blind. So what does Jesus do? He, he doesn't avert his eyes. He doesn't just wander by. Jesus stops and he gives him his time. Now, you know, most of us run pretty hard here in Melbourne, right? We're building a career. We're studying for an exam, uh, we've got kids, you know, we're dodging lines at stores for Christmas presents. There's a whole bunch of things. Life can be fast and full, right? And it can be so easy for us to place our own cares ahead of others. I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate question. When do we have time to take out of our day to put someone's needs ahead of our own? And I can confess for myself Uh, My kids are constantly asking for stuff. Constantly asking for stuff. Dad, can we play this game? Dad, can I have a snack? Dad, can you read this book with me? Dad, can you come help me? And if I'm being honest, I often let my agenda sometimes get in the way. And I think what's even more convicting is that my kids don't really want necessarily to play a game with me or to read a book. They just want my time. They just want to spend time with their dad. Dad. And so what Jesus does is actually a little bit different than just give this man his time. You see, the blind man obviously can't see Jesus, right? But he actually doesn't even ask. He doesn't say anything to Jesus. Jesus is the one that initiates the time that he could spend with this man. And he shows compassion and care. And I think for those of us that are striving to be like Jesus, that follow Jesus, this is convicting. You know, who is Jesus? He's someone that spends time with others, not, to those, not just to those who ask, but to those that he notices. So what does that look like for us, for those of us who are wanting to walk in his ways? Well, we know exactly what that doesn't look like by what his actual followers in his day, his disciples, do next. So have a look at verse 2. It says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Okay, so tip number one if you're going to try to spend time with somebody, don't instantly try to badger them with, well, tell me the deepest, darkest sins and secrets you've got in your life. Not a great opening line. And so the disciples, this is how they, they begin. And they ask this question, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? And it was a commonly held assumption of the day that deformity, leprosy, disease, those kinds of illnesses must have been caused by some form of sin. And it's interesting, the first thing they lead with, was it it the man? You know, he was born blind. So what kind of sin did he commit in his mum's womb? That'd be hard to do, right? Was it caused by his parents? Now, this is a a really interesting question, right? Was it it something that his parents did before he was born, during the pregnancy? Look, we can't can't know for sure. But from the Old Testament, we do know, and we have seen, and we see in the, the book of Exodus and in other places... That there were consequences of sin from former generations that can affect children. Now, this was an assumption back then, and it's also something that could stump us today, right? We can be quick to point out faults in our parents. Uh, and sometimes we can use that as an excuse not to change. Um, you know, as a parent myself, I sometimes worry that. Maybe there's some things that I'm doing that's going to leave a mark on my own kids. But the reality is, parents make mistakes. You know, these are great opportunities for us to ask forgiveness, myself as a parent, to our children. But parents mess up sometimes. Not my mum, but you know, some... (laughs) (laughs) Parents make mistakes, right? And so even even if this is true, does not mean that we should be living in fear that our, the parents, the sins that our parents commit, will mark our identity for life? That we're cursed somehow? Well, thankfully, the Bible has a different answer to this. Look at Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. I'll put it up on the screen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So what does this mean? And I want you to hear me on this. There is no sin. There's no consequence of our family's history that has more power than the transformative spiritual reality that Jesus can make you a new creation. You need to hear that. But you might say, well, that's sure, that's great. Jesus can change my life, and I'm a Christian. But I'm still struggling. I'm still suffering. I'm still dealing with family issues, or I'm dealing with illness. And I know that I'm this new creation, but why why am I still suffering? And oftentimes, it's that why question that is so difficult to answer. Why am I suffering? And you know, as a minister... I've been a minister for a while and I often hear this question and to be honest, it's a very difficult question to answer and oftentimes the most compassionate and the most appropriate answer I can give somebody, we can give them is, I don't know. I just don't know. And this why question can often be unhelpful for us when we are suffering Maybe sometimes the more important question to ask is what? If you're in the middle of a season of suffering right now, I'm, I'm just so sorry that you're going through this. I, I don't want to presume that I have any answers for what you're dealing with. But if it would be okay, I, I just want to put before you some, some of those what questions that might help that might give you some pause to think of what you're going through. And I'm going, to, I'm going to put them up on the screen. So the first one is, what is going to sustain me through this? You might not know how it's going to end, but what's going to help get you through this season? What can others do to support me? You know, oftentimes when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to ask for help. But it's a wonderful question for you to consider how could i involve other people in this with me and they're more than most of the time they're more than willing to help what if what will what will help if this never goes away gosh what a hard question to ask sometimes our suffering just doesn't end so what's going to help in the middle of this and then finally this might be even harder what hope could be found in this season I think the quickest answer that we would jump to is nothing. But I also think it's a really confronting question. What hope is there? Maybe not even just for myself, but for those around me. Um, I, I have a friend that I, I just really admire, and he, um, he went through the pain of losing his spouse to cancer. And in his grief, I just I witnessed something in him, even in that grief, the grief that he experienced and the strength that he had was so inspiring. And so I had to ask him, what, what, what is sustaining you through this season? What has sustained you? And I want to share with you what he, some of what he had to say to me. And uh, he's given me permission to share this story and I won't mention any names. He said to me, after the loss of my best friend, and closest confidant. The biggest challenge has been questioning, has been the questioning of God's plans behind it all. If marriage is a good gift from God, why does this ha- this one have to end so soon? If God is good, shouldn't he be with us instead of against us? The only consolation was knowing that my wife was with God, fully restored in a place where there is no pain, no suffering. Any other consolation was much harder to find. There are days where you're overwhelmed <clears throat> with these thoughts and feelings, that knowing what's real and what's not becomes so difficult. And I've never been great with Bible verses, but the one which resonated with me the most in this season was John eleven thirty five, 35, which are just the two simple words, Jesus wept. The knowledge that God incarnate felt the same pain, fear and sadness that I'm feeling right now provided me with comfort knowing that I'm not alone in this grief journey. I attempted to fill that space with kingdom work. And in a sense, it would have been what my wife would have wanted. But it was also the thing that gave me the most fulfillment. I invested in relationships and connection with my small group and family and sought to deepen my faith in my walk with Jesus. And to say that I am out of the woods is an overstatement. I'm still a work in progress. And I continue to remind myself of all the promises that God has fulfilled through the Bible, holding on to them with the knowledge that our God is a good, loving, and faithful Father. You know, through this horrific loss, I've been so humbled by how he's been able to put his faith in God in the midst of incredible suffering. And as we look to what Jesus is about to do and how he answers this, these why questions and these what questions of the disciples, we're going to see the compassion and the care that Jesus has for this blind beggar. Let's have a look at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, so instantly we see that Jesus denounces what happens to the man. It's not a result of sin, but rather it's a moment that God would display his works in him. The man more than likely had no hope in life. Right? He he would have no had no hope that things would change, no sense of purpose, that his only job in life was to beg at the front of the temple. And we can often fall into the trap when we're suffering that we're, we're just meant to go through it and that God can't use us. We can feel like we'll never make a difference because of what we're going through. But Jesus says the opposite here. He's saying it's because this has happened to the man that a mighty work of God might be done through him. But again, let's ask that question. What if I'm never healed? What if I don't get the experience that this blind man gets? What purpose is my suffering then? Several months ago, I was visiting my family in Perth, and at the time, I learned that my great-aunt was terminally ill. And I'd only met my aunt a couple of times, um, but uh, my mum was very close to her. And um, she had asked her this question, do you want to have some kind of spiritual guidance um, in this time? And my mum, with such great intentions, wanted to organise a priest or a nun to come visit her. But with me in town, I was like, hey mum, do you know I I kind of do this thing. This is, this is kind of my thing. I have to go see her. And so I went down to go see my great aunt, Wendy and she's hooked up to all kinds of breathing apparatus. She can barely speak. And I don't know much about her beliefs. And so the first question I asked her is just, well, tell me, where are you with your faith? And the first words out of her mouth were, I just want to get to know Jesus better. Now, as a minister, it's pretty cool when you hear that, right? But when it's your family, I just about fell off the chair. I mean, this was such an incredible moment. And over the next few weeks, we got to text and got to call with each other. And she had so many great questions about Jesus. She prayed with me. She read the Bible with her friends. She came to faith. There were all of these just amazing things that happened to her in these last moments of her life. And my aunt was a wonderful inspiration to so many people. At her funeral, I was able just to to speak to so many that even in those final days, there was something different about her, that there was a kind of freedom that she, she had experienced in her life. And she was an inspiration to so many people. And you know, in one of our last text messages, <laughs> I asked her how she was doing with Jesus, and this is what she said. She said, I'm leaning on him more every hour. He must be tired of my chatter. I have so much to discuss with him. And you know, Jesus, sometimes he just doesn't heal us in our suffering. But there's one thing for sure. He promises to be with us. He promises to go through it with us. And so what kind of hope, what kind of going through it with us does this look like? Well, let's have a look at what Jesus says next in verse 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Guy explained last week that when the Bible uses this language of light and darkness, this isn't just talking about how bright it is outside. Uh, it's, it's speaking often symbolically for good and evil. Sometimes it's chronological. You know, in this case, it says, while it is day, it might imply that the time that Jesus is with him. And when he speaks of the dark, it might be the time of Jesus's death. Sometimes it's prophetic. You know, Psalm 27 verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And this is written hundreds of years before Jesus would come to the earth. But maybe most, most importantly... What Jesus is saying here is deeply relational and personal. Jesus, the God-made flesh, the real human in history, came to expose darkness and bring light, the light of his salvation to the world, to your world. And you might often ask that question, You know, where is Jesus in my life right now? Again, it's this promise that he's with us. For those of us who are Christians, we can often reduce Jesus to some form of academic answer to a question of theology or a lesson that we've been taught or someone that we only go to when times are bad, like a genie in the bottle. But when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, what he's saying is, am am I more than these answers, these things to you? And if you're a skeptic or you're seeking Jesus, like like I was earlier in my life, you have to do something with these claims that Jesus makes. What does it mean that he's the light of the world? What does it mean that he's the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the saviour of humanity? When he says, I am the light of the world, he's asking this question, can you truly see who I am? C.S. Lewis has this famous quote, which I absolutely love. He says, I believe... In Christianity, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And you see, when your eyes are open to see Jesus as the light of the world, you not only see Him differently, you're inviting Him to show you the world how it was truly made to be. And this is what he's about, to show the beggar outside the temple. Let's have a look at verse 6. It says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now, at first you might think this is a little bit weird. You know, Jesus has healed people with a touch. He's healed people with a word. He's healed people not even being near them. Why would he choose to spit on the ground and rub his phlegm and dirt into somebody's eyes. This is a bit weird, right? This is a bit shocking. Well, I've got news for you. Jesus was a shocking guy, right? He was always doing things that would confront what was happening in his day, the religious rules of his day. I mean, think about some of the things that he did. He'd do work on the Sabbath. He'd heal people on the Sabbath. In fact, that's this day right here. He would touch lepers. He, he would hang out with tax collectors and sinners. These are things he shouldn't have been doing if he didn't want to be shocking. And even, what he, even if what he did, uh, spitting on the ground, even that would have been considered ceremonially unclean in his religion. All of these things were taboo. But Jesus, a Jew, was constantly challenging these religious rules. And we can often think, right, that Jesus is this kind of vanilla, easygoing, don't want to get in trouble with anybody, tolerant of everything and everybody kind of person. But that's just not the picture that the Bible paints. But Jesus didn't necessarily pick fights just to get into fights. He didn't do that. You see, he was willing to do whatever it took, anything, anything. That would open people's eyes to the beauty and the truth and the relevance of God's work. Of what God was doing in the world. Even if that meant ruffling a, little bit of fe- a, few, <laughs> ruffling a few feathers, he wanted to show people God's love and mercy and grace. And then there's you know, this shocking thing that he does to the blind man. I mean, imagine being a blind man your whole life, and all of a sudden, someone who hasn't said a word to you yet is rubbing mud in your eyes. I mean, he literally didn't see it coming, right? (laughs) And I I just wonder, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus, obviously, he wasn't doing this as an insult, was he? He wasn't doing this to demean the man. And he wasn't he was what he was trying to do was intentionally paint this picture of what he would offer the world spiritual sight to the blind. And I wonder for those of us who, again, we're trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we're willing are we willing to do some things that might be a little bit uncomfortable to share the picture of his grace. Now, I wouldn't recommend rubbing dirt in people's eyes. Not a good strategy. But what would it look like for us to show some radical hospitality to a friend this Christmas? Invite them over for dinner. Maybe invite someone over that's just been doing it a little bit tough. You know, what would it look like for you to take that step of faith to, to share what you believe about your bar, to your barber or your barista or, or to that person you see at the grocery store? Now, this can often be a bit the scary one, right? Evangelism. Evangelism is not my thing, man. That's for someone else. I get it. But I I, I love what Andy Bannister says in his book, and he's got a great title, How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot. The title alone is worth the price of the book. But this is what he says about evangelism. He says, evangelism is primarily what God asks of us is not our capability, but our availability. What if it just means being present, stopping, looking, saying something? You know, what if you went up to your barista and said, hey, just, just thank you for making that coffee for me today. It really tasted good. I know I paid you to make it, but it's just amazing. Thank you. What if, as Steph said earlier, what if you all you did was just invite someone to one of our Christmas services and sat next to them and took them out to lunch afterwards and told them about the hope that you have in Jesus. Because if Jesus really is who he says he is, we should be willing to get a little bit muddy, a little bit intentional, maybe even a little bit uncomfortable to follow in his footsteps. And as we look at this final passage in our text today, um, we're going to see how Jesus' radical act changed this man's life. Let's have a look at verse uh, verse 7. And Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing so first of all, we see that Jesus sends this man to a pool called Siloam, which means sent. And John makes, this, makes it a point to say that Jesus isn't just sending someone to a pool to do a few laps. He's sending him to a pool named Sent. And if you remember what Jesus said earlier in verse 4, it says Jesus says that we must do the work of him who sent me. So what John is trying to show us and what Jesus is making clear is that by sending the man to the pool, meaning sent? It's that God is about to do an incredible work. And again, imagine hearing this from the beggar's perspective. This um, this mysterious man has just rubbed dirt in your eyes, and is asking you to blindly find a pool. Now we don't know how he gets there. Maybe somebody helped him, but yet at the words of Jesus, what does he say? Oh, what what happens? He went. The man doesn't know who Jesus is, but he's obedient to his words. He received sight for the first time in his life. And this changes the man forever, right? He he didn't know who the man was. He didn't know that he was the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, let alone to have faith in him. I mean, he didn't even ask Jesus for anything. He didn't say anything. Jesus didn't even say anything to him. He was just a beggar. He had nothing but dirt in his eyes. And unexpectedly, he walks into, he speaks to the author of life, of all sight, of all light. And he goes, he accepts this invitation. And when he takes that step of obedience, that step of faith, he gets to the pool, he washes the dirt from his eyes, and he sees I mean, we won't get into the rest of the story, but if you read the rest of John chapter 9, after he's healed, this man gets a lot of backlash from the religious leaders. His parents distance himself from him. He's he's done something on the Sabbath that shouldn't be done. His life ended up getting a bit dirty itself, even though he was seeing for the first time. He was still outcast for this incredible miracle that had happened to him. And when Jesus hears of this and approaches the man, he asks him another question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that I am God? And this man whose eyes have just been opened, this man who has just been cast out by so many people, he has to ask the question himself. Who is this Jesus to me? And his answer in verse 38 it says he said lord i believe and he worshiped him sometimes declaring our faith can get a little messy for us it might distance us from our family it might distance us from our friends it could get us into trouble at work but just like this blind man following jesus means that your eyes are open to daylight, they're open to stairs or flowers or water for the very first time. And you get to see the world as it was meant to be. Jesus is so much more than a miracle worker, friends. He's the light of the world. And you might say, well, it's easy for the for the blind man to see, not to say that. You know, he was physically healed. He got to see a miracle up close. What assurances do I have? What has he done for me? Well, we know that Jesus has already done a miracle for us. Because you see, sometime later, this man, Jesus, who spat in the dirt and healed a man's eyes, was spat on himself. He was whipped. He was beaten. And he was forced to drag a cross through the same dirt that he healed this man with. Up a hill. And he died on it for you and for me. He didn't die. He didn't get hung there to be healed, but to be, like it says in Isaiah 53, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon the chastisement was put him that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what Jesus has done for us. In his suffering, he brought us peace. In our skepticism, he's opened, he opens our eyes. And as the band comes up, I, I want us to spend a few moments considering these two pictures that Jesus paints for us. He's the person that meets us in our suffering. And he's the person that can open our eyes in this even in the skepticism that we have in our own heart. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.